Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. It's about the, the financing that comes with new construction, how that looks like, because I've never really touched a new construction loan. Sure, sure. Well, it's not really that much different than doing a flip. Um, the nice thing is that typically if you have your plans, uh, you can send them out, you get a bid set. So you can actually get actual bids for almost everything for new construction versus if you've done a flip, it's like a lot harder to, you know, your contract's like, I don't really know exactly. We're just going to estimate and put right. some, some different, you know, line items in there. And when you go to do your financing, typically with new construction, you know, they'll want 50% down um, for the lot. Okay. Right? So it's like more for the lot because there's more risk for them. Mm-hmm. They look at it and they say, well, there's nothing actually here. It's just dirt. So we want to lower our, our exposure. So we're going to ask you for more money on, on the lot piece. Um, and then, and then they just, you know, same thing as like, a, like any type of other loan. They just look at the ARV, you know, or, or what the value of whatever you're going to build on the back end. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 21 of the Realized Gains podcast. I'm your co-host, Jordan Lee, and I'm a mortgage lender based in Portland, licensed in about 10 states, uh, and I invest in single-family homes. And I'm Stephen Trent. I'm an Oregon realtor, and I invest in multifamily and single-family homes. And uh, today we have a really great guest. He's actually in my office. His name is Reed Kirk. Mm. Uh, he's a great realtor, but one of the big things that, that he's known for is uh, you know, development. Yeah, he's got a kind of cool process. He's really understands the building code in the local area, and so he's he's figured out how to do condo condoization. Yeah, um, as as well as another a few other things to kind of maximize what you can build in the area. Yeah, no, that was an extremely great tip that I'm gonna take. You know, when I build multifamilies, like I can sell them off individually. I never even thought about that, and he made the process seem so easy. So you know, obviously everybody tune in and find out a little bit more and find out how you can maximize you know with new construction. Hey guys, welcome to the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran and I'm here with my co-host, Jordan Lee. Hey everyone, I'm Jordan Lee and I'm a mortgage lender based in Portland, Oregon, uh, licensed to do business in 10 states and I like to invest in single family homes and we're super excited to invite uh, Reed on the show today, uh, Reed Kirk, and he, he's got a long career in real estate. Maybe you want to give us a quick just introduction, Reed, of like you know, your background and how, how you got started in the business. Sure, sure. So um, I've been a real estate broker since uh, 2004. So pretty long time uh, through all the ups and downs. Um, and um, right now I specialize in new construction and development and so on. But, you know, I didn't start that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in 2004, I was working part-time in retail. Uh, That's what you, you came from retail? Yeah. yeah. Like, so Nordstrom's, Macy's type uh, retail, or what? I was I was a manager at Abercrombie. Okay, nice, nice. During were, during the good old days, you, you were an Abercrombie <laughs> model. Yeah, the ripped, the ripped jeans yeah, and everything. Yeah, like the, yeah, the whole um, 
the the whole documentary and stuff. Yeah, I was it, I was there during that time. <laughs> right. so in fact, it's where I met my wife. So maybe oh, wow. I committed some of the the, the sins on the podcast. <laughs> um, so you know, but at the time, I think I was making like twenty five grand a year as an assistant manager, and uh, um, a friend of a friend was a real estate broker, and he was like working part time, making like sixty grand a year, and I was like, I I don't care. If I have to work in the middle of the night or whatever, I want to do that because this job sucks. Mm. So, um, so I ended up getting my uh, looking into it and getting my real estate license, and then I got hired to sell new construction. Um, so I had a Wait, right away. Yeah, yeah. So, so what ended up happening was uh, I got my license. Um, the the friend of a friend basically said, "Hey, if you get your license, you can come work with me." Right. And I said, okay, great. You know, so I got my license. I was working part time in retail. And then, um, you know, I did a couple deals here and there. But then his boss, um, you know, where uh, I guess the, the principal broker of, of the office where uh, I held my license came to me and said, hey, I know you work at this, you know, low, low paying job. I'll pay you to sit on site at these mm. condos and sell them for me. And I said, I get more money and more free time and I don't have to work in the middle of the night. Okay, great. You know, so, so I jumped over. Um, and then it's, you know, I always joke that it's a, a story of victory by attrition because of my, my immediate boss, you know, we sold a couple condos. I worked there for, for a year and, and there were probably about 40 luxury condos in downtown Vancouver. So if you ever think about hard sales, like luxury in downtown Vancouver, oh, you know, 15 years ago. Oh, yeah, God. So the builder had <laughs> just built a condo complex. Yeah, it was. And a, you were selling the condos inside yeah, of the building. Yeah, yeah. It was a mixed use. So the first floor was all like retail. Mm -hmm. Then there was commercial space, right? So like, you know, office space and whatever. And then there were like three three stories of uh, high-end condominiums at the at the top. And they're all like custom built. So it was all just shells that we were selling. So I was selling basically like the dream of living in downtown Vancouver mm. um, and building it out however you wanted. And they were, you know, at that time, it was like starting base price of like 600,000 up to 1.2 just for the shell, not including wow. like all the, you know, so we sold through the majority of those. And then my boss basically quit because she's like, ah, there's only so many left. So then I became the, the manager of, of the site. And then once I had sold through all those, I got hired to sell affordable condos that were a condo conversion in downtown Portland. Oh, nice. So basically like these, these, it's a big apartment complex mm -hmm. that's over by Portland state. Um, they, they bought it. These developers had bought it and then, um, effectively evicted everybody and were renovating them and selling them as, you know, super cheap condos. Yeah. So I went from luxury high end in Vancouver to super duper affordable in downtown Portland. And then, um, I got hired as the assistant. Well, my boss there went crazy and, <laughs> uh, and basically constantly said, Oh, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. And then the developer said, well, you're fired. And so then they, uh, promoted me and then I ran, you know, the sales all the way through and there was like 500 and something condos there. Oh, oh that was so, a big conversion. So, yeah. Yeah. What year was this when this happened and you had, this was right after the crash. So I was, oh, so this is like 2004 to 2000. So, so this, so I got into this, the affordable condos. Right at about 2007, so right at the peak of mm -hmm. the market, and then yeah. it started to crash. And so we didn't see the effect uh, in in that market until you know the following year or so, because our price point at the time was like 
200 grand for a condo. So yeah. people were still buying those. So you went from but, selling them at like 200 to like 180 instead of like yeah, yeah. 500 to 300 and, or something. And when the market got really slow, they ended up actually selling the final building. So I'd already pre-sold like over half of the condos in the final building. And then they're like, just kidding. We're going to sell it as an apartment complex. <laughs> and so I got paid what? for all of these units that I never actually like closed. Oh, they, just they still honored the commission. commission. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. They're nice. like, here's your hundred G's. Bye bye. You know, or whatever it was. So it worked out pretty well for me. And then we kept like a little bit, uh, like there's like 12 units that were left over, like a couple of, you know, the penthouses and whatever. And so I sold through all those and that was kind of my base to start on on my own in the business. But the market had just crashed. So yeah. 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 So that, but was, that was a nice time to have some seed money because yeah. at that point everyone's like losing all their stuff, right? Right. Well, and even during that project, I was doing like um if you remember like uh like paper wholesaling, are you familiar with that where so like you would get a condo or like somebody would have a condo and you pretty you pretty much only do it with condos. Like it was something that was under construction. Um, that hadn't been built yet, right? And so you've got it under contract for like two hundred, mm -hmm. but now it's worth two twenty five or two fifty. So these people would just sell it to another person and do a simultaneous close, and that other person would close on it. But then the first person would get the delta of like twenty five grand at right. closing. Mm -hmm. But you can't really do that anymore with you know some of the, some of the new restrictions. It's you know very tough. Maybe if you're like wholesaling, you could do it. But yeah, yeah. that's effectively an assignment fee, right? So I did that two or three times while I was there. So I was building up some some cash as it was. But yeah, it gave me kind of a crash course in working with investors because I was working with the developers of the entire project mm -hmm. um, and then also just investors that were coming in and buying property and in buying units and and then me figuring out okay I can take over this contract of somebody who fell out because I'm on good terms with mm -hmm. the developer and our agreement was I could only resell units if there was none of that uh, product available Right, like mm. this floor plan doesn't exist. Otherwise, oh, I just so you're not competing it. against. Yeah, right, right, yeah, because okay. he didn't want sense. me to be like, yeah. you know, underselling yourself, slanging units, <laughs> yeah. you know, out of there and be like, you don't need to buy the. <laughs> That's one ninety nine. I'm buying mine. Yeah, I'm, I'm one ninety eight. They're one ninety nine. Yeah. Come on, yeah. It's like no, no, no. You don't want to do that. Um, but it, it did provide a good source of um, resale as well because I knew all of the people who had bought units, so. I did a lot of resale at the same time as, as the new construction. So it was, it was pretty beneficial um, project over the long term for that. But after that was done, I, you know, you kind of sell yourself out of a job when you yeah. sit on site in one of these projects. Right. And so I ended up, um, I ended up getting into um, uh, buying properties at the auction. So, like you personally. Uh huh. Okay. Yep. Yep. And, and and right before that, I was a team leader of an office for about ten seconds. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah. So I that wasn't for me. I didn't want to sit in an office all day and just you know cold call other agents to try to come and you know mm. and come over. It's just it, you know just I, I'm you know I'm a wolf pack of one I guess or whatever. But and I like being out in um, in the field and I like walking through you know construction zones and working with investors and and so. Traditional real estate was never really my jam, um, you know, and I I did pretty well, you know, selling properties to, you know, buyers and sellers and whatever. But there was a certain aspect of um, showing someone 10, 12, 14 houses and they never buy anything, oh, yeah. which is really frustrating, you know, even though you're trying to close them and there's no commitment, but feeling like your income is out of your hands, mm. right? Like it's weather 
you know, Tom and Jody decide to write an offer versus, you know, when I work with investors, um, it's very analytical, yeah. right? So it's just, do these numbers work? Do they have enough capital to do the deal? Can we structure it in such a way that it that it works for them? And I know, generally speaking, what they want. Um, you know, I need to make this much. I want this type of product, you know, whatever. And if you have enough of those people, it, it makes life a lot easier. And then they also, those people don't like to work in the evenings and weekends as well, because right. it's typically their, yep. their full-time job. Yep. And that was a big issue for us, you know, um, or for me and and my, my wife, my now wife, she had an eight to five. And when you're working real estate, you're working all the time, whenever, you know, if the bat phone rings, you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, and and I wanted to get away from that. So I thought that working with investors, that would work out well. So I ended up buying properties at the auction to kind of grow that investor pool. Um, and, um, the company out of Seattle that did all like the research and everything and provided cash. And I would go and drive around and look at properties. And, and then when all of that kind of went away because of the mortgage electronic registrations stuff, my investor pool just kind of stayed and I started to say, Hey, I'm making all these other people a lot of money. I should probably flip houses more too. Like I'd done a couple, but I hadn't really gotten into it seriously. Um, I was just helping people find product, but once you've done it enough times, you kind of know, okay, this is a good deal. This isn't a good deal. Yeah. So, and so, um, so from there, you know, I started to look at properties, whether it's through wholesalers or, you know, on the open market or distressed, like we're buying bank owned properties and short sales and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and helping those investors buy properties. But then I also started to do my own projects, like I was flipping a bunch of houses. And then I got into doing those pop tops, you know, where you take a house down to like one wall and then you build an extra okay. level. And then, you know, I said, Hey, we're competing. We're basically com- competing with new construction pricing. We might as well just build new construction. And yeah, so then yeah. I started building new mm. construction and, right, right. you know, and so the flips just, got more and more yeah. intensive to the point where you're like, all right, I'm just going to buy dirt and build. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it becomes, if you do flips, like I don't know very many people who've just made their bones on only flipping for a very long time, you know, cause mm-hmm. it's, if you're your own money and your own contractor, uh, ooh, I did it. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> uh, if you're, you're, if you have your own cash and you're your own contractor and maybe your own agent, then there's all this extra margin. But if you're just an average person right. that's, that's trying to flip houses or like, I'm not a general contractor, I've managed projects and so on, but I think that there's a value in paying somebody else to, to manage that. And there's also as a, a certain, um, level of, of liability protection right. as well. Right. Um, in case if you've ever been sued, you never live till you've been sued. Um, <laughs> and but but when you add in all those extra pieces, it becomes very tight, you know. And so you end up like if your profit margin is only forty grand, but then you missed that you needed an oil tank, and you know it was on the market for too long, and so on. That forty grand can get down to ten grand real yep, quick, yep, yep, and yep. then it becomes not really worth it. Mm-hmm. So um, then you try to go for you, you know, try to swing for a bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, bigger chunks of profit if that makes sense get tilted basically yeah yeah you just like i just need to do a bigger project because i need bigger bigger revenues Mm -hmm. because it's not worth my time if it's you know if i'm only gonna make 10 20 grand a piece you know and if i can only do four a year that's i might as well just stay being a traditional real estate broker or do a different job because i could probably make more money doing that um so you end up you know you know, swinging for the fences and trying to do bigger projects, which can get you also in trouble if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And you're just, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm sure the price point's a lot higher to jump into new construction and 
Um, yes and no. Like with so if you're look, if you're thinking about when you buy like a like a flip property, right? Yeah. You know, most people, let's just say the average person is probably using private financing, like hard money. Yep. Right. Yeah. You're going to bring in 10% for the hard money. And most of the time you can finance in your construction costs as well. So between 10 and 15%. So you might have a lower down payment when you, when you purchase it, but then you're going to have your interest carry along the way and then mm-hmm. you get any overages. And ideally that's for, let's just call it a six month time frame. You know, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, I can flip in three months. It's like, yeah, well, you know, life happens, you know, know, whatever. Um, so I just assume six months, if you can get it done before then, then great. That's extra gravy. But I'd say 75% of the time usually goes longer or there's a, you know, delays in construction because XYZ sub didn't show up or whatever. Um, so yeah, maybe your out of pocket is only a hundred and a hundred grand to do a project or less than that, you know, 75 grand, whatever, depending on the size of the project. But with new construction, you have to have a larger down payment for the lot. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just say it's a hundred fifty thousand dollar lot. I'm just making up numbers sure, here. Sure. Um, you might have to bring in seventy five thousand right away, so more than you would have on the flip. But the majority of the rest of your expenses are going to get reimbursed, like all of your design and everything else that's built into your budget. So you're going to be a little bit more, uh, you know, out of pocket overall for the entire uh, project, but not nearly as much as you would you would think, um, mm. because the rest of the build's going to be financed. So it's really just going to be the differential and the interest. Yeah. Um, and the, the nice thing about the new construction piece is that there's no surprises, you know, for the most part, you know, as long as you've done your due diligence and everything, you understand like, okay, I can build here. There's no, you know, there's no oil tank I need to worry about. Right. Like I know where the sewer's going. I know, this is going to be the foundation and so on and so forth. So as long as you are working with, uh, with a good price per square foot in your initial like budget, then you can easily, you know, quantify whether it's going to be a good project and then B, um, you can send that out for bid a little bit later on once you get, get into it. So it's, it's a little easier to analyze and you just kind of know, okay, these are my, these are my costs. This is the process. It's very do A, then do B, then do C, then do D. And at the end, you have a new construction house that someone doesn't like put you through the ringer on during inspections. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know, even with flipping, you get to the end and then they're like, hey, $10,000 in repairs because oh, yeah. X, Y, and Z. And you're just like, well, there goes my profit. Yeah. You, you, know? can't, you can't look like through the house and see the galvanized plumbing and all this mm-hmm. stuff that could go wrong. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's just... You know, I think that there's also, from a buyer's perspective, um, a a mentality difference, right? Like, if someone's flipped a house, they think, oh, this person's making a bunch of money, so I should ask them. And, and I think that agents are probably somewhat guilty of setting them up for that. Like, well, yeah, it was flipped and it was, you know, they're going to probably make this much, so we should try to ask for, you know, they're just trying to do right by their client of or course, to get their yeah. client the best deal. But let's ask for XYZ. Or the home inspector is going through and saying, oh, look, they just did the cosmetic stuff and they didn't touch uh, this galvanized plumbing. They didn't touch this. And they can yep. they can find your deepest, darkest secrets from your from your flip. Yeah. <laughs> they go and dime you all the way down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and or they'll just irrationally pull out because they think, oh, this person like, you know, they didn't get a permit for this. So they probably didn't get a permit for that. And, right. You know, they get in their own heads and, and freak out. But with new construction, you don't get that as much just because it's new. It's a new build. 
they don't really understand probably the, the profit margins involved in, in that. And you're offering a warranty typically on the property. I mean, maybe you get like some type of homeowner's warranty with the flip, but with the new construction, you have like a structural warranty you can pay mm -hmm. for, um, mm -hmm. like the, the 210, like extended warranty. So we do that when, when we sell new construction. So, um, so you graduated from flipping and yep. then you moved on into construction and did you start just building single families or how, how did that transition work? And did you just use like all the contractor relations that you had made or what yeah. made you decide to like, Oh, I can do this. I can go for building, yeah, right. I can become a builder or developer. Well, I think I just kind of got sick of the, uh, the chaos of, um, of major remodels, mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of frustration there where, um, so to take a step back, the the allure of doing a major remodel versus new construction, at least in the Portland metro area, is that you were able to do, and you can't do this anymore, but there's something called the FER program, which is the Field Issuance Remodeling Program through the city. And it's basically like an expedited permit program. Mm -hmm. And you could do major remodels through that program. Okay. So a lot of these flippers and, and contractors that the flippers use will use the FER program to to get their permits a lot faster. Right. Right. So we were able to take like a set of plans and effectively almost build new construction. You leak, leave the foundation. Right. Right. Leave on. a little portion, but right. basically do new, con new construction, mm -hmm. but through a loophole. Yeah. And it's effectively a new yeah. house aside from the foundation yeah. and so on. But what we were running into is, you know, we do all the demo and then this contractor wouldn't show up and you've got like a half built house and it's getting rained in. Right. Or, then this person wouldn't show up or the floors were a little uneven because the foundation wasn't just right or it's like whatever, a hundred year old house or something. Yeah. You're like dealing with like the existing guts of this house, at least the bottom portion. And then you're mm -hmm. trying to tie on to like the old sewer line and, oh. you know, and so on. And so I just got a little tired of all, the, all these delays and um, just trying so to unknown. jump through all these yeah, hoops so just to unknown. save a little money on, yeah. yeah. On like not doing a foundation and your, your permit fee. Well, uh, on a couple of my projects, I um, had gotten into uh, doing property line adjustments because I was like, hey, this house, we're going to flip this house, but it also has a big lot. So let's do a property line adjustment where we basically like hack off a lot. Mm. And now I've got this extra lot and I've sold the house. Now what do I do with the lot? And there was a point where I was like, well, if we own the lot free and clear and it's part of the proceeds, we should just build on it, you mm. know? And then, and so that's kind of, where that came from, um, you know, to an extent. And, you know, I'd sold a couple of lots off and done pretty well there. But then you, you look around and you say, well, how hard is it really to, to do a build? And I'll tell you, I think it's very important to have uh, good partners mm -hmm. because, and, and that goes for the flips as well as, right. as new construction. Um, and I'm still, even to this day, still dealing with kind of refining, like, okay, this person didn't work as well as this other person. Um, I had one contractor that I ultimately ended up having to, to fire because he was supposed to be building this new construction house and just like nothing was happening. Right. Yeah. It was like six months into my loan and all I had was like a concrete foundation and, and that was kind of it. And I was just like, I can't, can't keep waiting for this guy. So I ended up getting referred to another builder mm. and then it was, it was like night and day, you know, it's like, ah! <laughs> um, and he just, he came in and it was like, people on site every day, you know, you, you drive by and like, you know, the, the framers are there and then the window guys are like standing there waiting for the framers to get done and, you know, so on. And, and it was very like, um, it was just a world of difference. 
And we've worked together ever since nice. uh, on all of our projects. And, and I trust him kind of implicitly to make sure that um, I never have any concern that stuff's not happening on site. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, we work, you know, hand in hand to try to get the best pricing available. Um, and we have a, we have a little bit of a different structure, you know, with what, how we how we do our business versus how some other people might do theirs mm. when they work with builders. Right. You know, especially for fee service builders, it's a little different than if the builder is the one who's bought the lot versus the part. Oh yeah, where they they own it. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because because they they have their own costs and they can make a little bit more in their margins and so on. But if you were to just go out and have random schmo builder, um, you know, remodel your house or build a house for you, a lot of times they'll just say, this is the price and yep. then that's it. And you don't see how much the windows cost and you don't see any of these other things. And then they do like a markup on materials and, yeah, yeah, and right. so on. Well, I just, the way we have it set up is I pay him a flat fee for the build and then I deal with all of the costs. And for you materials. pay for the materials. Okay. Right. And so I yeah. just see everything, right? So yep. he just gives me the bills. So it's nice for him because he doesn't have to deal with like me going, no way, that's way too much. And that's ridiculous. Why are you charging me this? Why are you charging right. me that? Um, or any change orders. There's no change orders because this, the he's just giving me the bills to pay. And then if our budget was off, then I have to, I just have to deal with that with the lender. Yeah. So, but the exchange, you know, is that I'm probably getting a better value because I'm just paying him a flat fee. And then if ultimately I want to shop around materials and stuff to, you know, or a different vendor, I can in theory do that to try to get a better price, but usually it's hard for me to find a better price because he has he has a pretty good set of people that he works with. So that so, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I did it when I built my fence. I just had paid him by per the hour or whatever, whatever his rate was, and then I bought all the materials. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Just like building a fence. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so so yeah, so that's currently probably the biggest difference. So that's how I kind of initially how I got into it, you know, and then once you've built new construction, I think there's also like a fear, yeah. you know, where people say, oh, well, it's easy to do a flip because it's an existing house and there's no risk really, you know, as far as like, I know what I need to do. I just need to get it to X to, to be able to sell it. And it's only going to take me six months to do this, or it's only going to take me four months. So there's this, you know, um, lower anxiety level with like a flip with new construction you know, especially in the Portland metro area, it takes you like nine months to get your permits and right. then another six to build. So you're committing to anywhere from 12 to 18 months just for a new construction, like if you have the lot ready. And mm -hmm. heaven forbid, if you have to do any type of like land use stuff, like you got to divide the lot or whatever, that's like a two-year project. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I think it's very daunting for people to, mm -hmm. to want to pursue that, investors to want to go after that because there's very short-term mindset. That's why mm -hmm. you see builders always saying, Hey, you got any build ready lots or you got any, like anything that's permit ready. Like I'd buy it from you for a premium right now, because for them, it turns that into almost like a flip for them because they're only they're they're at the six right. month mark to build. They're just going to come in and just drop everything there and just, right. And just get it and going. Just go. Right. Yeah. And so there's yeah. no, there's no run up time or whatever. So, um, so I think that that's probably one of the the, the pieces that steers people away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the ways that I kind of turned that on its head was I said, well, what if I started buying rental properties, uh, where there's an extra lot mm -hmm. and so there's no risk, right? Like if I can get an extra lot off of a rental property, that's already cash flowing, right. Then 
I take the time issue out of it. There's no, mm-hmm. and then I can just sit on that indefinitely. And if no holding the market, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the market's bad, then I just don't build on it. If the market's great, then we build on it. And I can, you know, once you get your permits, you're good for like a year, you know, with the, with the city. So, <clears throat> so that was one of the ways where I started to kind of build. A and worst case scenario, you could just sell off the permitted lot, right? Yeah. You yeah, exactly. Build, you could, cause... Right. And there's a lot more, there's a lot more off ramps, right? So once you, once you've divided the lot or you've done your property line adjustment, you can sell that lot to yep. somebody, or you can go through and get the, um, get the permits mm-hmm. for the lot. Right. So you design a house or whatever, or you take like a stock house from one of these different, um, uh, companies that like will design something, uh, like mass court or whatever, and you just sit it down on a lot. And you, then once you get your permit at the city, then you could go to a builder and sell it for more to them for X, Y, Z more, right. and maybe make a little bit more. Or at that point, you say, well, maybe I'll build it now and then I'll sell it, you know, for whatever it's worth at the end and make extra. So there's a bunch of different ways to, you know, kind of skin the cat, so to speak, you mm-hmm. know, um, when it comes to building. Um, yeah. And, uh, can you tell <laughs> us about the, the financing that comes with new construction, how that looks like? Because I've never really touched a new construction loan. Sure, sure. Well, it's not really that much different than doing a flip. Um, the nice thing is that typically if you have your plans, uh, you can send them out, you get a bid set. So you can actually get actual bids for almost everything for new construction versus if you've done a flip, it's like a lot harder to, you know, your contractor's like, I don't really know exactly. We're just going to estimate and put right. some, some different, you know, line items in there. And when you go to do your financing, typically with new construction, you know, they'll want 50% down um, for the lot. Okay. Right? So it's like more for the lot because there's more risk for them. Mm-hmm. They look at it and they say, well, there's nothing actually here. It's just dirt. So we want to lower our, our exposure. So we're going to ask you for more money on, on the lot piece. Um, and then, and then they just, you know, same thing as like a, like any type of other loan, they just look at the ARV, you know, or, or what the value of whatever you're going to build on the back end, And then they have their standard loan to value, you know, caps. And as long as your budget fits within that, then often away you go. And these investors are looking at it like you're going to sell, mm-hmm. not not that you're going to keep it and hold it as a flip. So it's like right. a spec construction. Well, and the nice thing is with with if you're complying with those um, those ratios, or if you have a really good ratio with your property, and you know, in their eyes, and it should be in your eyes to the, to an extent, as long as you're um, uh, able to like qualify for a refi, there's a backup plan there. Right. So you could just you could basically say, I'm going to build it and then, oh, well, I can't sell it now. I'm just going to put a renter in it and refinance it, you know, um, versus sometimes when you're doing like a flip, that margin's not there. Right. Or it's not going to cash flow because Mm -hmm. you're only going to make like 50 grand and that's just not enough to to get that uh, to get that refi push through. Potentially, it's not worthwhile to do that. So so there's benefits there. and not, but not every lender will do new construction. So right. you just got to kind of shop that around, but the points are generally the same, you know, like right now, I think I, last year I was paying 10% interest and, you know, a point and a half. Yeah. Um, and now it's changed. Like almost everybody seems to be right in that 12 and two to three, I want to say 12 and one. And it sounded like hard money rates basically. Yeah. Well, and if you do like, I looked into, um, conventional financing yeah with like you know a couple different banks in town and i could have gotten qualified but one of the things that they had told me was well we only want you doing like one project and i was like okay well that's not gonna work <laughs> like you know i don't want to just 
have one house going per year and that's it. Right. Um, and usually conventional, they like to do it more for something that you're going to hold and refinance and rent out. Right. Or, or a second home or, um, yeah, they don't, a lot of them, them don't want to do spec. spec. Yeah. yeah. They don't want to do spec. They'd rather just do your second home or whatever. Right. And you could tell them it's your second home, but then that's, you know, it's a good way to get your, your loan called on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so there's, so that's kind of, the the general terms but the other thing that i like is if you as long as we're going along the kind of the private financing side mm -hmm. of things um if you buy a lot free and clear and, and i've done this a couple times now like let's just say you find a lot's 250 grand or 150 and you have mm -hmm. either it's you or an, you and an equity partner or whatever if you buy the lot free and clear you can sometimes build in an interest reserve so your only cost is that upfront acquisition of the lot. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you'll have some soft costs in your design phase, right? Like you're going right. to have to pay a you know, surveyor and then you, know, you get your plans and so on. But you bake that all into the loan and you get all that money back. So you can basically bake in your interest reserve using the equity in the lot. Right. And so I like doing that because then if you can get an equity partner to jump in and say, okay, I'll buy the lot – they feel good because they're like, hey, I own all the dirt. There's no way I'm not, well, it's not no way, but there's very low risk of me not getting my money back. And um, and then you as an investor, you don't really have to bring in any capital for the most part to do to do the project, like if you're kind of managing it. And that's kind of the, that's where I sit in most of these projects where I, you know, I have equity partners, I have, you know, um, deals that I just do myself. Yeah. Um, where I have cash into them or it's just me or, or whatever. Um, but a lot of times I will um, manage the entire deal and work with the equity partners to like, you know, hey, bring in this much. Here's how, what we're going to forecast for how much cash we're going to need. Here's what, you know, the um, our estimated expenses are going to be. And, you know, I have to put together a performa for each of the projects. And then, and then I also manage the general contractor. So kind of like, you know, the puppeteer of the project, so to right. speak. Um, and, and, it allows you to kind of move everything around and, and figure out the most advantageous way to, to structure a deal to not only protect your out-of-pocket expense, but also, you know, probably provide the most profit for you. You know, it's kind of like, you know, always use other people's money. Oh, yeah, yeah. OPM, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so that's the, so that's kind of the way that the I've worked with the new construction financing. Um, once you get past, you know, we talked a little bit about multifamily and I haven't really talked about that at all yeah. so far, but I get, I did a bunch of new construction, single family, and then I um, did a major remodel in Albina uh, where we built an ADU on the back as well, like a separate detached ADU. Mm -hmm. And I believe the city of Portland said I was the first person and I don't know if this is true or not, but the first person to AD or to condo ties an ADU and a house because they're like different sizes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, but they both had an equal vote in the HOA, even though like the house was like way bigger. Oh, oh so you made the ADU an actual condo. Yeah. And right, then right. sold it off. It sold it's them as two separate. Sell it. Right? Yeah. Okay. They're still on the same lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. this is a newer code, right? Yeah. Yeah. It allows so, you to, con what, what is the phrase condoize an ADU? Oh, just, you know, well, I mean, I, we just, all we did was a shoebox condominium. Mm -hmm. uh, and so basically we had a house that sits in the front and then we had a detached ADU that sat in the back and the market was starting to slow at that point and we couldn't sell it, them together. Like we weren't getting any traction selling them together. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of a funny story actually. Um, so we ended up saying, well, I've sold condos in the past. We know people who've done condos. Let's just make it a condo. 
And so it took a while for our... How many square feet was it about? <laughs> the, the AD was like 350 square oh, feet. Oh, wow. So it's <laughs> like the, not a full uh, big AD. Okay. No, and the house was 2,200 square feet. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, but... Um, big condo. Right. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's honestly, we need more of that. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of space for that in Portland. Right. Like, it's well, the reason why they made that code. Right. And there's a, yeah, and there's a bunch of different, you know, styles of condominiums, but... The shoebox condominium basically says anything inside this box is your responsibility, which right. makes it a little easier to to um, to do on a on a scenario like that. If they were like attached, then it would have probably been a big pain in the rear because then you're sharing, you know, sharing the sewer and sharing the electrical yeah, and all right. this other stuff. But this had basically it was its own little you know controlled entity, mm. right? So we ended up selling the front and then we sold the back. We sold the ADU. We sold both houses, and and that got all finished up, you know, um, paid everybody out and then the project was done. So I had this like, okay, I've done a condo, right? Nice. Like I know how to do the, the process. So wait, was the buyer for that? Did they just pay cash or were they able to finance the condo? Financing on the front and cash on the back. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say it would be, might be kind of tricky to finance right. that small. Condo. And then I just found out like a couple years later, <laughs> the guy who paid all cash for the ADU yeah. bought the unit from the front and then dissolved the condo. So like, oh, like why didn't you just buy it for me in the first place? Like, <laughs> so I didn't have to do the condo. Yeah. Is there a lot uh, of paperwork for that? The condo process? Yeah. Um, not a ton of paperwork. It's just a little time consuming. It takes a lot longer than you think. It takes like about three months. Okay. Um, but you need to do it at a certain point during um, the construction or else it becomes just kind of a like a cluster. So you mm. got to, like, and there's just like a, a lot of process. So you were trying to sell it off together while you're in the bu uh, building process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then you realize that you wasn't going to work that way, so that you went for the new option. Yeah. How much did you sell that condo for? I think that condo sold for three hundred and seventy-five thousand. For three hundred square, three hundred something square feet. Yeah, it was like I think it was like almost a thousand bucks a square foot or something like that. Wow. <laughs> it's so so, crazy. Well, how did you get it to work out? Because you said there was an HOA, so they would go into the backyard and like kind of basically manage and clean up everything outside. Because you said no, it's a self-managed HOA. Self. So just the only only the two units. Right. So what happens is like. Um, so that the way the condo process works, um, a lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions about it out there. So in the eyes of the city, all you're building is like a multifamily or a duplex or a house with an ADU, right? The city of Portland or whatever municipality, you're just building a multifamily, okay? The condo process, totally separate. And it's a state thing, right? So, okay. so what happens is you get a lawyer who to draft all your condominium documents and they submit that to the OREA. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, the Oregon real estate agency for those of you who yeah. know the acronym, uh, and they review those, uh, those documents to approve them. Right. And then there's, you know, some back and forth and you sure. have to like, you basically have to pick an LLC name, right. a, a name for your HOA. Yep. So I'm very unoriginal and I tend to choose like the cross streets. Right. So I'll be like, this is like the 52nd and Boise condo, you know, right? <laughs> um, but sometimes people like name them after their kids or, sure. or whatever. You pick whatever you want, as long as it's not taken um, on the LLC registry yeah. um, for the state. Okay. And then they, you know, they might require some changes from the lawyer and so on and so forth. But once those docs are approved, then you can get your sales documents, which replace all the OREF, like all the, all of our traditional real estate like mm -hmm. sales documents. Okay, so um, so totally separate process. Now um, the easiest way to think of it is that you're effectively creating an LLC for the structure, and then you're selling a percentage of that LLC right. 
to each person, you know, and so if it's five units, you're selling 20%. Yep. And that percentage is uh, is for the exclusive right to use whatever unit you've sold to them, right? Mm -hmm. And each condo doc set is separate for each unit. Um, and then, you know, at the end, once you've sold everything off, then you have a turnover meeting where you, you go, okay, we're not the owners anymore. Now you're the owners. And then you say, who wants to be the treasurer? Who wants to be the president? <laughs> there's two people. And, yeah, and there's only two of them. Right. It's like, well, well, somebody's got to pick one. You know? <laughs> How do you so, do the vision when one is like 300 something square feet and the other one's 2,200? Do you do it by square footage or? Uh, no, what we did was, so what you do is you have two equal voting. Like, so each person gets an equal vote in the HOA. Yeah. Um, and I think they did it so that there was two votes per unit, right? Because there's two people who were on title on each one or whatever. Not that that really matters that much, but that it would allow for, you know, you have three versus one or, you know, whatever. Um, so a little more uh, maneuverability. But I think what you're probably really asking is how does that HOA fee, you know, get structured to an yeah. extent? And taxes. And yeah. Aren't they yeah. paying themselves since they're the... Yeah. So what happens is an HOA fee is structured basically like there's um, future maintenance, there's right. monthly expenses and then there's management, yeah. right? So, and then the monthly expenses would also include like your, you know, so that's like your sewer and your water or whatever your shared utilities are. With that, yep. with the one I did, it was just sewer and water. Um, those are the only two things that were shared, right? Because those are the only, we only had one um, water meter and then one sewer, but they had their own electrical and their own gas. So that was totally separate. Mm. Okay. And then, um, there's an so and then on the management side there's like an insurance and then annual filing fees right so uh so they put together like a um uh, a uh an analysis for what the future expenses are going to be right and then they kind of break that down by the year and with uh the reason you tend to see like older condominiums have higher HOA fees is because there's more anticipated like repairs and, and upkeep. Mm -hmm. Right. So that piece is higher. Um, and it, as compared to like new construction, you're not foreseeing, like you're not gonna have to replace the roof anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so they just calculate all that out and they go, okay, here's, here's what the total fees are going to be. And then they do a pro rata square footage. They do like a percentage. And they yeah. say, okay, little teeny condo, you're, 25%, you know, and yeah. then big condo, you're 75%. Um, versus if they were the same size, like I just did one where it was a duplex where they're both exactly the same. Mm. Um, and we sold that at the beginning of this year. We sold both sides. Uh, and the HOA fees are exactly the same. Again, shoebox condominium, we just split it right down the middle. Mm. Um, and then we sold each side for like, it was like 625 a piece or something, mm. you know, so over in Southwest. So that's kind of how that process works. Um, and it's not super complicated. You just need to start it pretty early. Like the, you have to do a survey for the condo and yeah. people forget about that. And the survey needs to happen. Like once, once you've like framed it in and everything. So once you framed it in before you put drywall and you start going down the road, you're supposed to get your survey done. And then you can do like non, um, non-binding reservation agreements. So if people want to like, take a reservation, then title can take money, but those people could, could bail at any time. So the sooner you start that doc process, the sooner you can get your binding, you know, like where you can take earnest money that's like non-refundable and stuff. So you get that. And then when the OREA signs off and says, okay, high five, you're a condo, um, then you can like actually close. So a lot of people run into where they start the condo process really late in the project. 
and then they're sitting around with like five people who want to buy their units and they, you know, if you've ever seen those ones that are like condos are just like pending like for a really long time. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is they're waiting for their condo docs because they mm-hmm. waited too long to like get all that stuff done. So like they did. And so um, and even with the one beginning of this year, I started relatively early and I still had to wait 30 days to close before my condo docs got finalized and filed and, you know, official, you know, so to speak. No, I love that. I mean, it's basically like a new way of building affordable housing. I mean, instead of just trying to find duplex buyers or quadplex buyers. Well, you almost have no choice anymore with, you know, I don't know how people are building single family in in the Portland metro area anymore, you know, with the cost of lots, like with the, with the changes to the code, like with the rip and everything, you know, (laughs) a lot of builders have said, well, screw this. I'm going to get out of here. Like the city of Portland takes forever. You know, now they've changed the, the floor area ratio, their FAR, Mm -hmm. you know, for these lots. So like, I had a 5,000 square foot lot. You used to be able to basically build whatever you wanted on a 5,000 square foot lot as long as you met the setback requirements, right? right? And then they had like a max of whatever the square footage was, but it was pretty high. And so whatever you could fit within like the height restriction and the setbacks, that's what you could build. And now they're like, oh no, the FAR is like 50%. So you can only build a 2,500 square foot house, you know, in theory. And I think they just updated it. So it's a little bit more now, but they're like, well, you can only build 2,500 square feet. But if you add an ADU, now you can build 3,200 square feet. Yeah, because they're encouraging right. more multiple And if you units. build two ADUs, yeah. now you can build 4,000. And so they're just, they're kind of forcing your hand because that lot, you know, if you figure that you're buying dirt as, a, as an investor or a builder at like, let's just call it 20%, 25% right now of your, your max sale value, if that 500,000 square foot lot or, or 5,000 square foot lot was uh, you know, 250 grand, are you going to be building a $1.3 million, 2,500 square foot house? Probably not. I mean, who knows anymore at this point with the way the prices are, but, uh, but so it makes it really tough where the only way to, to really make money is to put more units in. Yeah. And so in the eyes of the city, when they say we want more affordable housing, what they really mean is we want smaller housing, right? Because, a two by four costs, what a two by four costs, whether it's in Lake Oswego or it's, yeah. you know, in North Portland or wherever, it, do, it doesn't matter. It costs the same to build drywall costs the same regardless yep, of where exactly. it goes. So, um, so there's no, there's no additional magical ways to like just cut costs from your projects unless you're getting like affordability grants or something like that. Or something we've been doing on our new multifamily projects is that we've been applying for SDC affordability credits. Mm-hmm. Um, where they really reduce our SDC fees. So it's saving us, you know, it's $100,000 per project, you know, to 120. And that you have to keep your price at like certain. Yeah, it's 430. Okay. Well, they have different ones, right? Yeah. So there's, there's one, the one that we're doing is 430K um, and under, and then Mm -hmm. you need to sell it uh, to an owner occupied individual and the uh, maximum um, family, I think like household income is like 90,000, I'm mm-hmm. going to say right now. Yep. And then adjusts each year, right? Right, like right. Based off of, you know, whatever their metrics are. Um, but then there's other ones where you can get a, um, like a, a tax reduction. Mm-hmm. So if that owner occupied person is, uh, lives there for, you know, it's like 10 year tax moratorium or yep. whatever. Mm-hmm. So you can apply for those. But we found that some of those restrictions for not only, the unit size and the price that reduced our price so much. We were like, it's not worth it to do that one. Mm. So, but does that allow you, and that allows you to structure them as condos? 
Uh, yeah, Graham. Well, totally, totally separate process. Doesn't matter. Doesn't like, matter. They don't yeah. care as long as it's. Yeah, I mean, they know you're going to sell them as like yeah. at four twenty five. So I know you have a minute left, oh. <laughs> so I don't want to push oh. on too much further. But just a quick question yeah. about. And sorry to interrupt that, but if someone was to get started in real estate, what kind of advice would you give them? To get started in yeah. real estate, somebody started in real started estate investing, investing, or even um, building. I would say, you know. Don't be afraid to to reach out and, and tell people you don't you don't know or you want to learn, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that they uh, should know everything in the beginning, and it's going to be a learning process. And just understand that you're going to make some money here, and you're going to probably lose some money there, like along the way. Um, but I wouldn't be afraid to um, to try to partner as a junior person in a mm -hmm. project. To bring capital, it's okay to be the capital person if, if they have money, you know, to learn learn the ropes. But beyond that, um, you know, trying to just shadow somebody who's done it in the past, you know, and, and just soak up as much information as you can, right? Like whether it's going to these classes or, you know, listening to podcasts or whatever else. But the biggest thing is you just got to do it at some point, yeah, right. right? Like, I mean, you, you know, I don't know how many people are like, oh, I'm just, I've been thinking about doing XYZ deal. And then they just... Don't. Don't. <laughs> you know, they're just analysis to paralysis. You're so worried about making money that you never jump on any deal that's good. And you don't learn. Right. And if you're really, really new, especially young people, I tell them, go buy a house if you don't own a house. Like, first of all, you know, and secondly, you should try to buy like a multifamily if you can. Buy yeah. like, go buy a fourplex, get an FHA loan, and then fix up a unit. So re-rent it out, move to the next unit, fix it up. And you did. just do that over and over again. You refi that fourplex, then you go get another FHA until your your partner says, um, "I'm going to break up with you if, if you if we don't go get a normal house." <laughs> and you go get a normal house. So. Okay, great. And yep. uh, if people are looking to find you, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can um, go to my website, which is um, LucyHomes.com, L-U-C-I-H-O-M-E-S.com, mm -hmm. um, or you can email me at read at LucyHomes.com as well. Great. Okay, so. Perfect. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, hey, thanks so really much. Appreciate it. It's a good time. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the Realized Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.